Hello and welcome back to Talking Flutes meets Talking Flutes Extra. I am Jean-Paul Wright, the flutey tooty geezer guy, bloke, man, whatever you want to call me. And I'm back down with Claire Southworth. Hello, Claire. Hello again, JP. Um, we've had quite a few positive responses to the last podcast we did, uh, answering questions. And I've come down to ask you some more, but more about yourself this time, rather than advice. I hope there are no surprises here. <laughs> well, as is it's me, there probably will be, so I apologise in advance. One of the uh, interesting things in asking people questions is the diversity of replies I get back. Mostly wanting to know what you've experienced as a musician, as a professor and as a player, but also how you've managed to install this path for future career from your students. So the questions I'm going to ask today are largely based around you being a woman in a musical environment and your influences within that. And then touching base at the end is that when you used to plan for a recital or a concert and how you would recommend others do now. So I'm going to throw quite a few little questions at you and see what sticks. Okay. Shall we go? Shall we go straight in for it again? Um, thanks for the coffee again. You're welcome. <laughs> that was a very you're welcome. <laughs> uh, I've got the rust-coloured um, mini bucket again. You have? Yes, really nice, thank you. <laughs> right, who have been your biggest influences in your career and why? And it could be flute players and non-flute players, I suppose. Okay, so well, let's talk about flutists first. Yes, go on. So, three very clear people who influenced me. William Bennett, sure. Jeffrey Gilbert, mm-hmm. James Galway. Yes. All right, so it's, let me talk about those. So I first heard Wib live at a summer school concert. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So I was probably 15, I think, 15, 16. The most incredible sounds and the most wonderful music making. It was vibrant. It was exciting it was just sort of such a mix of of emotions hearing him play sort of larger than life as a person and larger than life in terms of sound and presence had such stage presence it was just fantastic and that concert each year at the summer school was the highlight for everyone I mean you could hear a pin drop. It was just, everyone was mesmerised by what Wibb did in those concerts. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I heard him when I was young as well, and I think that it was the sound that drew me in straight away. He, he didn't come on. I can't even remember the, the, uh, what, he, what he played, but I just remember in those days it was the sound he was making, the different colours of sounds, rather than being really flashy with technique. Yes, he was the first person to me that, that brought the music to life that made you think, I've got to play that piece. Yes, it, it, it had, it, it was like, an, a, like surround sound. Yeah. There was so much going on, and it was, as I said, mesmerising. It has that ability to be able to throw that sound out, doesn't it? Oh, it certainly does. It was like n- nothing I'd ever heard. And, and, there, and, I, and I did this, I listened to recordings, but when you heard it live, it, it was completely different. So they were, they were magical moments. So, and then my other main influence was Jeffrey Gilbert, who, of course, taught William Bennett. 
So Jeffrey I also met first at, at a summer school. Now his teaching was, it was so clear and technical and insightful. And his sole aim was to help you play better. So he had no other agenda. He just wanted you to play better. He nurtured his students. He was never aggressive or abusive. I was always nervous playing for him because I wanted to always play well. <laughs> you know, it was it was it was a, a very f- different sort of emotion that you you had to be so well prepared. You didn't dare go unprepared because he would he would find you out. You know, it was. In a friendly way, or in a very friendly way, yes. But it was a, it was a bit like you'd you'd go you'd go and you'd say a bit like going to the doctors and and, and um, he'd you'd say I've got this problem and and the doctor goes okay well you, this is your prescription go away and come back to me a week if it doesn't get better. Um, but he he would sort of be able to look at you and say you've got this problem because you're doing X. So sort out X and then things will get better and, and I remember there was, there was one occasion when he was helping me prepare for a, for a competition and I was just playing some technical things and uh, I'm trying to think what it was I played well that's right, it wasn't for the competition it was Lorenzo Studies the oh, Lorenzo, the yeah. nine gross studies sure. which means big studies, not horrible studies but they are horrible but wonderful and I was playing the first one and, and I sort of playing, and he said, well, you, you seem to maybe have a, a little bit of a problem with, you know, this and that. And if you sort this out, it should work. And then he just picked up his flute, rattled through the first section of this Lorenzo study perfectly at huge speed. And it was, it was unbelievable. And he was about, he was a, a, at least 70 at that point. I think he died when he was 74, so this was... Not long before he died, it was his technique was phenomenal. I really regret not writing down everything that he said to me, because it was it was it was of such value. He had such stories to tell. Because later on, these summer schools, I went first as a student, and then I helped, and then I I taught at these summer schools. And I remember in some of the later summer schools, some of the tutors shared a house on the grounds of this big public school. And early afternoon, so after lunch, we had about two or three hours free. And I would sit, it was in the summer, we would sit in the garden of this house and chat. And he told me the most wonderful stories about his life, career, his thought processes. It was fantastic, but I didn't write it down. Oh, for an iPhone and the... Oh, for an iPhone. Yeah. Luckily, someone did do the same thing. Angelita Floyd, American flute, fabulous flute player and teacher, she based her thesis on Jeffrey Gilbert, and out of that came the book The Gilbert Legacy. Oh, is that where it came from? That's where it came from. And she recorded and wrote down everything he said in many, many, many lessons. So is there a recommendation coming out here about that book? The Gilbert? Fabulous book, absolutely fabulous book. The one book you should read, it's, that is the book. And for many of you listeners that have never heard of Geoffrey Gilbert, make this one of your priorities for 2019, to actually look into this guy, because he really is a bedrock of flute playing, certainly in the UK. Yes, he was, 
uh, as important as Marcel Mo- as important in England as Marcel Moyes was in France. At the age of sixteen, he could have been principal flute or principal oboe of the Halley Orchestra. And the sorry, flute- hang on, let's yeah. double that. Let's go back. Principal flute or principal oboe, because he was so good on both. And <laughs> he, the flute position came out first, so that's what he took. So that life could have been very different for him. <laughs> life could have been very different for us if he hadn't continued with the flute. So you're not understating his importance here, no. are you? And he was he played a wooden flute. He was sort of what we could might call old English style. And by the time he was a principal flute, this was later when he was in London, I he'd heard on the radio, I think it was René Loire mm-hmm. and thought, who is this person? What is how is what how's he doing what he's doing? Most fantastic sound, very different. And French flute player, silver flute and Geoffrey gave up his job as principal flute, went to France, and the first thing he had to do was buy a new flute. And he had to learn how to play with vibrato, and changed everything. And when he came back, he was given his position back as principal flute, sounding very, very different. So he broke the mould, you know, because of him that we play in the style that we play today. Geoffrey Gilbert. A fabulous person, absolutely fabulous person. Wonderful to be with, wonderful to have lessons from, a real gentleman of the flute. Huge in the flute world, absolutely huge. And now moving on to one that everybody's heard of. Yes, okay, so Jimmy. In my college years, he was the most exciting flute player around. The man with the golden flute, the man who could play everything, always perfection, brilliant, vibrant sound, perfect technique, Twinkling eyes. <laughs> what was there not to love? Absolutely stunning. My memory then was, I, I was very, very lucky. I won a competition to take part in a, a small select flute course at the Wigmore Hall. Oh, it's a very um, posh place. A flute course yes, there. Yes, a flute course. There were only, I think there were only eight of us and I was the only one from England. Right, for those who don't know, Wigmore Hall is one of the preeminent um, recital... Recital halls in London. It's, it's probably it's, one of them in the world, isn't it? Yes, it's really beautiful, very traditional, beautiful, a beautiful small arena. Not that small, actually. You had to a- apply and, and get picked, and I said I was very, very lucky that I was one of the eight and the only one from England. And we had morning classes with piano. I oh, know, sorry, morning classes without piano just with Jimmy and in the afternoon there was a master class with piano with a piece that he'd pick for us based on our audition and then in, in the evening Jimmy would play that piece plus a few others well the afternoon and evening was televised so he had no time to practice during the week because he was working morning afternoon and evening and yet every evening he would do these fantastic brilliant concerts which were televised and the vivid memory I have of this course was that in the first morning, you know, he was asking for who wants to play. And I was always one for putting my hand up, saying, I'll, I'll, I'll play, uh, just so I could relax mm-hmm. for, the, for the rest of the, of the class. So I volunteered and I played my piece. I can't quite remember what it was now, but after I played, he, he, he looked at me, because uh, we were on a stage, of course, uh, and said... Um, what are you doing? And I thought, oh, heck, what am I doing? Have I done something wrong? I don't know. And he took my flute for me, and he just played Flight of the Bumblebee. Hang on a second, you play open G sharp. Well, that's what I'm getting to. Oh, sorry. So he took my flute and played Flight of the Bumblebee on my flute. 
And then he handed back it back to me and said, oh, I see now. No one knew except me. He didn't say it to anybody. But Jimmy didn't he, play open G sharp. He didn't play open G sharp, no. He saw that I was playing open G sharp and said, oh, what are you doing? And then took my flute and said, oh, I see. Played Flight of the Bumblebee, handed it back to me. And, of course, my jaw was on the floor because I knew what he'd just done, but nobody else did. Very clever. And he didn't say anything he to you? He said nothing. Oh, how classy. Very, very classy. So he was, as I said, he was a huge figure. So those, those three were huge figures in my education. I learnt so much from all three. Non-flutists... Yes, that's going to be interesting. I, I think that's, that's, it's really difficult because, of course, you, as someone who wants to go into music, you listen to lots of music mm. and you love lots of music and you play lots of music. I played all different sorts of music, listened to lots of different sorts of music. But in terms of classical, there are three that stand out. Klaus Tunemann, mm-hmm. Rostropovich mm-hmm. and Perlman. Well, there's two of the three I'm aware of, the last two. <laughs> so... Klaus Tunemann, bassoonist. I think German bassoonist. And Keep going, bassoonist. Right? Yes. And a friend of mine at college, bassoonist, said, you've got to listen to this recording I've just got. And it was Vivaldi bassoon concertos, played by Klaus Tunemann. Phenomenal. Unbelievable stuff. And um, I just made me want to go and play Vivaldi. But play it with in his way, it was, again, very vibrant, mm. exciting, incredibly exciting. So, wonderful. And many, many years later, I remember I, I was working in Germany on... Um, I, was, I was on a, a flute convention in Germany, and Klaus Tunnemann was there, and I asked to meet him. It was, it was wonderful. It was a lovely moment. He was doing a concert with Peter Lucas Graf. Oh. So I actually, actually got to meet him. But he's worth hunting out and listening. Listen to his Vivaldi concerti. Brilliant. Rostropovich. Mm, uh, I can of course, see why, yeah. Everyone knows him. But I had a recording, because I, I didn't hear him live when I was growing up. I, I, when I played in the LSO, he was a concerto soloist. So I heard him live at a much later date. But when I was uh, younger, I had a recording of him playing the Schubert Arpeggioni Sonata uh, with Askenazi playing piano. No, or maybe it's Benjamin Britten playing piano, sorry. Benjamin Britten playing piano. Good grief. And just incredible. Absolutely incredible. And inspirational. In fact, it was the Schubert Arpeggioni Sonata that I used as my audition piece for the Jimmy Galway Masterclass in, at the Wigmore Hall. Roughly sort of the same time. And then the last one of my group, the most wonderful, oh, yes. it's Zach Perlman. And I've never heard him live, but the recording that made me listen more to him was a recording of him playing the Paganini Caprices. <laughs> and this was also the time that I was learning them. And then I heard this recording and I thought, I don't know these pieces at all. I don't know how to interpret these pieces because he made them... So different. Yeah. Effortless as well. Completely effortless. But it was just sort of a a different level of music making. So wonderful to listen to. So they're my three flutists and non-flutists. Right. Any golfers? 
What inspirational golfers? Yes. Well, of course, many. <laughs> but there's there's one I'll, I'll, I'll mention. I, I saw an interview with Justin Rose, and he was just asked, "Is there any piece of advice you could you could give to someone uh, play sort of maybe in competition?" And he said, "Concentrate on your breathing," okay. which is very apt for, of of course, for musicians to think about your breathing, to control your breathing, because it's your breathing that affects what you play. And the breathing, is, is, I, I would presume, affects your swing as well, or the pre-swing. Absolutely, absolutely. You need to control the breathing, just like your music. So, for example, if you, you know, when you're nervous, the breathing gets shallow and gets fast, and it's nervous. And what comes out then is shallow, fast and nervous. Your breath needs to, to help reflect whatever it is you want to say with the music. If, you want the, if the music is calm... You need to get your breathing calm, so you breathe slowly, breathe out slowly in order to help reflect that mood. If you've got something that's very energetic and lively, the breathing can be energetic and lively to help reflect. It'd be nice if we had a switch, wouldn't it, which said calm, manic, excitable. Well, I think you do as you get as you as you get more more experienced, you know, more able, then. You, you're controlling your breathing is, is part and parcel of, of performance, like playing the right notes. It's part of the whole performance package, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's not separate. It's not a separate thing. So, some wonderful influences there. Did they call themselves flute players, flutists, flautists? Well, it's always, in England, it's always been flautists. Yeah, it has. Um, but I, I, I've always liked the word flutist, because we play flute and your flute is... Oboists, oboe players, oboists, clarinet, clarinetists. You know, I just like the word a little bit better. A flutist. Yeah. Right. Now, the next one, and this is from Clarissa, based in Texas. Do you feel that women are now getting a fair crack in the flute world and with available job positions? Simple answer is yes. When I left college, no. (laughs) I... I found when I was I left college, or maybe when I was at college, when I left college, I felt there was a, a lot of inequality, and it wasn't just in jobs and opportunities and bookings, but it was also in competitions and selection processes and things like that. And one example which sticks in my mind: I did all the competitions. I love competitions, and I entered an international competition that's which was a. Um, had a few rounds, and the final was in Madeira. Mm-hmm. Lovely island. Yes. And I won through to the, to the final in Madeira. And there were six of us, and we had two rounds. And, uh, you know, after the, the first round, three, three were eliminated. As you can imagine, I practised for months. I mean, for these competitions, these interna- international competitions, I didn't go, I didn't go into it lightly. I was thoroughly prepared. I worked for months and months and months. And there was a piece specially written which was incredibly difficult. I mean, there was a lot of work involved for it. I didn't pass the first round, but I had got through to the final. So, you know, and it was all expenses trip to Madeira. It was fabulous. On speaking to the judges after the final, which was won by a male player, I, I I was just asking about, you know, how they decide, uh, you know, just to get some information, to help me maybe with the next time. 
I was told it was his turn, as he hadn't won anything yet. I can't even. I can't. I'm, I know. I was absolutely stunned because of the work involved. But I was told that it was his turn to win because he hadn't won anything yet. The judges, which will be a shock, Julius Baker, Jean-Pierre mm. Rampal. I remember thinking at the time, what is the point? I, I, I remember thinking it's got nothing to do with music making or ability, which maybe is the case for all competitions. But I, I love that competitive atmosphere. I thrived on it. I entered everything, and luckily I had good success. So I went in to each competition. That was a very early one. So every successive competition I went into, I went in with the mindset that it might be my time, might not be. You might, it might be objective or subjective. There might be a judge's favourite student or not. I didn't know, but I went into it because I felt that by winning things as a, a woman in a male-dominated environment, that I could, you know, more things on my CV, more chance of getting, of getting work. So I kept going. And do you think the, the flute world and music world in general is, is changing Oh, absolutely. I think that if you if you look at the in the seventies and the beginning of the eighties, there were well, certainly in the seventies there were two female sort of trailblazers in, in the flute world. A Tara Bentoven, yeah. uh, principal flute of the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic, and Susan Millan. Yeah. And they paved the way for women after them. I mean Atara or it says that she won the LSO, um, auditioned for principal flute, but it was at the same time as, as James Galway, and it was an f- all-male orchestra. So, But he would, have, he would have been there, you know, at, at some point anyway. Of course he would have. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that there weren't sort of the opportunities, but those two women worked hard and were strong, you know, real strong role models and achieved fantastic things. And do you believe it's a level playing field now? I think now it is, absolutely. There are many fabulous flute players, male and female, and I don't think, or I don't get the impression that there is a bias. Good, so you don't think it's a gender bias anymore, you just think it's now... I don't think so, no. Well, it wasn't as contentious as I thought it would be. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I suppose if we'd asked this question 15, 20 years ago, you would have probably had uh, probably a rant at the lack of opportunities and the fact that a lot of auditions weren't being done behind screens, were they? I, have, I never did an audition behind a screen. Really? Never. Because that's a very recent sort of uh, technique mm. now that they, that they do that, which is much fairer. No, you got in the room and you you did your stuff and then off you went. Right, Felix from Copenhagen has asked some questions on planning of recitals and performances and understanding narratives of pieces. So his particular questions, which I'm sure you want to encompass into one, is how do you start planning for an end-of-year performance recital and number two, when you're planning a recital or performance, how do you balance out the programme? 
Because that's really important, isn't it? Yeah, incredibly important. So preparation starts really early. I mean, you could maybe even start it a year before. And why I say that is because, I mean, certainly at the Academy, if you'd played a piece in an end-of-year recital the year before your final, you couldn't repeat that piece in your final recital. So you had to think, if you played a piece that you really felt showed you off and was really summed you up in an end-of-year exam, that would eliminate that piece for your final. Oh, so you've got box clever. Yes, you do. So, so that doesn't happen in all places, but maybe that's something you have to consider. So I would say you have to think about the pieces that mean something, that suit your style of performance. And you need to do your research and listen to lots of pieces. Not to copy, mm-hmm. but to listen to pieces that help you understand what you need to show. Because it's, it's got to be something that is maybe sort of personal to you, that demonstrates you. Something that you can show, what, show your ability, show how you interpret pieces and show your strengths. I think there's got to be... I think personally there's got to be a connection running through the programme. It can't just be a collection of your favourite pieces. I remember one, one recital many years ago and someone played a Bach sonata, I think it was Mozart flute quartet Prokofiev sonata. And it was obviously three favourite pieces. But it didn't really sort of bring anything new to us. It was sort of boring, but boring almost in the planning. All three fabulous pieces, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't anything sort of innovative within that. So it can't be a collection of your favourite pieces, but it could be, say, 20th 20th century repertoire. It could be, you could pick maybe East European composers. You could do East versus West. Compositions from displaced composers. Mm-hmm. For example, like Martin who, Martin, Martin, who wrote his wonderful sonata when he was in America. And he just heard the war ended and then wrote the piece. Right. That's why it's, it's so full of joy. So that there, are, there are various ways you can think of, of planning a programme, but it's, it's, it's essential. So there are key elements to the programme then. Timing, essential. You know, we, you're penalised... Uh, in end of year, uh, in end of year recitals, final recital programs, if you run over or run under, and it's so important because when you're booked for for outside engagements, your know, music clubs say, "Oh, can you come and give us a recital? Uh, we want thirty five minutes each half," and you've you've got to you've got to stick to that, and that thirty five minutes has got to include your introductions and chatting and tuning up and walking on and off the stage and reorganising the stage, things like that. So timing, you've got to know your timing. There was, there's a story uh, at the Academy that many years ago that um, a violinist, his first piece in his final recital, which is 40 to 45 minutes, it was an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's just no, no thought. And that there was a brass player when, when I was at college that started his final recital and after 20 minutes he had to stop because his lip had given out because <laughs> he hadn't played for really more than 20 minutes. So he hadn't planned. He hadn't planned. It's, it's, it's silly. It sounds silly now, but it's, it, it, it's, it's really important. So then your pieces that you pick, are they showing the right level of difficulty? 
is there a variety in styles, a variety in interpretation? I think your dog's dreaming. Yeah, she's dreaming. <laughs> so then she's lying by my foot. I think, yes, she's dreaming. So, yes, variety. A programme just of flute and piano music is really boring. You know, what else can you bring, can you bring in? So uh, strings, percussion, electronics, uh, solo flute. You know, it's, it's, there are all sorts of things. I, I once heard a final recital which was all from the last 15 years or so. Very contemporary, avant-garde. There was no contrast in the programme at all. It showed incredibly highly skilled level of playing contemporary techniques. But I had no idea at the end of recital whether that person could play the flute. Oh, that's interesting, isn't Yes. It? I hadn't heard whether they could produce a beautiful tone or play a musical phrase. It felt like um. 45 minutes of nonsense. One of those pieces within a normal programme would have been incredibly impressive. <laughs> but three pieces like that in the one programme had a negative effect. So I had no idea whether they could play. And I found it very difficult to judge. That's interesting because as, uh, sort of on a similar correlation, I mean, I love contemporary art. And it makes me, I do wonder sometimes whether some of these modern day 20th century or 21st century artists can actually draw because what they're giving me is visual, not giving me the visual signals that there is that drawing ability behind it, which obviously there is, but I can't see it. I suppose that's convention, that's me wanting to fit a conventional label of this beautiful drawing and painting to this abstract current work of art. But when it comes to music, I get what you're saying. One makes you appreciate the other. Yes. And it's like I was saying with the... Um, if, you, if you just played flute and piano all the way through, it becomes boring because you're hearing the same sounds. If you just do a solo flute piece or flute and bassoon, uh, flute and cello, flute and harp, or flute with electronics, flute and strings... You know, it just, it breaks things up. It gives your ear something else to latch onto. And you can tell if somebody is playing a programme or has constructed a programme that they truly love rather than just putting the standards in because they feel yeah. they need to. It shows thought process and how those pieces fit together, whether they run nicely from one to the other rather than just a collection of your favourite pieces. There's got to be a feeling of... Of, of continuity of a flow within within the program, just like you would see within art. Sure, it's it's really interesting, and that's I always I, I always used to say to my students, go and listen to final recitals because they're always open to the public, because you can hear the programs that work and the programs that don't, and you can have an idea of how to put a program together that works, and and you you might be inspired by certain pieces that you could just sort of make a note of and then use them, you know, as a later date. And do you think that flute performances and recitals should be of flute music or do you think it is okay to to take a music... To transcribe. Yeah. It's, that's a really difficult one because you don't know whether the panel is going to criticise you for playing transcriptions, although I would think a, a, a final recital of transcriptions is a very valid programme to have. Mm -hmm. And you look at things like Cesar Frank. Yeah. You know, it's 
It's very often played on flute, and it's a fabulous piece of music, incredibly difficult piece of music to interpret. So it says a lot about you as a flute player, but some purists might say you should pick a flute piece. People perform their final recitals based around the guidelines they're given, aren't they? Yes. If you're doing a performance or recital outside of a college, mm-hmm. music college situation, what sort of interaction would you expect the musician to have with the audience? In other words, do you believe in explaining a narrative of a piece or do you just think um, there should just be the name and then... And then play? Yeah. I always, always talk. And I always give narrative because that allows the listener to understand the piece more. But if you take that one stage back, anyone learning a piece needs to understand the piece. You cannot perform the piece unless you know about it. Whenever I do classes, the first question I say to the performer is, what can you tell me about the piece? And 99% of the time, maybe higher, they can't tell me anything. Like, say, they were doing the, Mar- the Martinu Sonata, which I've just talked about. You know, say, you know, what can you tell about Martinu? They'll give me the dates that are written on the front of the, front of the part. And I say, but, but what do you know about the man, about the music? What else have you heard by that composer? Generally, Nothing. So you need to do your research. You, you, you go and listen. So a, a, a student piece was, was playing the Nielsen Flute Concerto. I think you need to listen to Nielsen to understand how to play the concerto. Mm-hmm. They'd never listened to anything else by Nielsen. Go and listen to the symphonies. Actually be absorbed by the music of that composer so you understand the style in which they're writing. And then you can be inspired by the style. Don't go and listen to umpteen performances of the Nielsen Flute Concerto because then you copy mm-hmm. go and listen to loads of performances of other pieces by the composer but not flute pieces and then you can absorb that style you know what they're all about and then find out more detail about the particular piece you know was it was it commissioned was it written for a particular occasion um, and then and then sort of it helps you interpret. Uh, and then when you go and give a concert, you can talk about it. And, you know, you can't always find out about the pieces. Mm-hmm. And if that was the case, I would make it up. Okay, just to so, create this situation where the audience understand. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I talked in a, a recent podcast mm-hmm. about Daniel Wood's Paul's yes. Caprice. And um, there is no real information about Daniel Wood. There's very little that you can you can find out. I mean, at least now you can, you can Google, you know, and <laughs> back in the day when you couldn't Google, you were, you were, you were stuck. You had the Groves Encyclopedia <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and there's nothing in there. So, you know, so you were stuck. So I would make up stories to help you visualise what's happening in the piece so the audience knows what's coming. So there it was, you know, he, he lived and worked in London. He was very close to the to the lovely parks in London and that piece felt like the opening very relaxed he's walking through the park it's a beautiful day he's going to work then he finds he's late he rush, has to rush that's the middle bit and then he has a bit of a rest that's a little interlude and then oops I, re- I really am late now and rushes off to work so you know you can 
you can bring a piece to life with a narrative and uh, it's so good for the audience and whenever I talked the feedback was how lovely that you told us about the music I mean they can have program notes because there's, mm-hmm. generally speaking yeah. someone will write some program notes but that's sort of like the, the, the nitty gritty this composer born here, died here worked, work, worked here went to college here, studied with this person wrote these pieces and that doesn't tell you about the piece you're going to hear Fascinating absolutely fascinating and the most important thing you'll do as a musician is obviously planning your end of year recitals as a music college student or planning a performance in front of an audience and there's lots of different layers in which to consider the narrative thing for me is very important because as a listener I don't I quite like being bamboozled with technique but also I want to be taken on a journey but I need to understand the journey, otherwise my mind will start wandering off. Yes, and you need to have a connection with that performer. Yeah. You play in so many different venues, and if you play in a venue where you're up on a stage and the audience feels miles away, that's how the audience feels. They feel miles away. They don't feel a connection with you as a person. They need to have that connection in order to help that enjoyment. Remember, your your main role is to be an entertainer. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what you are. And the audience don't, they don't hear when you go wrong, or generally speaking, they don't hear when you go wrong, or when, if you feel you've had a uh, not such a good day. The audience don't know. Um, what, what they want is to be entertained. And part of that entertainment is to make a connection with them and to talk to them, not at them. Mm-hmm. Today I'm going to play this, this, you know, it's... It's, you know, how lovely to see you all and, you know, start off in a, in, a more, in a more informal way and make them laugh, make them feel engaged with you as the performer and the more you do, the better it gets. Personally for me, I found that I was I'm always nervous before I go on. So I'm, I, I've said in a previous part about I always, would always eat Mm. that helped my nerves I would always close my eyes just before I went on sit down, close my eyes a bit of mindfulness calm calm me down walk on stage the best thing to calm my nerves was to talk again we might have related this at at a previous time I remember there was a a summer school where I had a, a, a group in my class of about 60 players and um they asked me about nerves, and I said, well, when I do my recital, I'll tell you how I feel. <laughs> and I, I said, well, the recital came, and I said, well, I promised my class I was going to tell you how I, how I felt. So my hands are shaking, my knees are shaking, my mouth is dry, and now I'm going to play. <laughs> uh, and then felt okay to play because I'd spoken, mm-hmm. but the, the people listening said they felt more nervous oh, because I'd related to them you know, how I felt. But for me, I know that if I speak, I relax. So it's, if you've never spoken before, give it a go. Claire, thank you for inviting me down to your lovely house. And do you know, it's still nice to be able to hear the seagulls. And is that a, um, what can I hear in the background? Is that a... It's a street cleaner. A street cleaner? He's taking up all the leaves. Oh, how posh. 
You have street cleaners down here. I'm sure you do where you live. <laughs> we have to do them with the old-fashioned brush, you know. I look forward to once again coming down. Great to see you as always, John Paul, and look forward to the next time. Yeah, take care. Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.